week. Uh, we're still in 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. Uh, we're only going to look at a couple of verses. We're going to look at verses 15 down to 17 today, and we're going to see that Christ came to save sinners. That's what Paul has to tell us here today. Uh, now, before we get looking at that, based on what we were looking at last week, if you didn't know better, you might have come to the conclusion last week that Paul's salvation came as a result of his own faithfulness. He was just, he did such a good job. Or even possibly, if you look down towards the end, because he was so ignorant. Because he admitted that hey, all those sins that I did, those horrible things I did, I did it in ignorance. Well, we're going to see today that that's different. Uh, so with that being said, let's look to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And it goes like this. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. We do thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give to us. Grace for each day. You know what you have in store for us, and you, you have all the grace we need lined right up. You're an amazing God. It's an honor to serve you. We do ask that you'll guide us through your word here this morning. Help us to break it down and help us to apply it to our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I say, we could have drawn a couple of mistaken conclusions last week if we, if we weren't paying attention. And today we're going to see Paul marvel that God would even save him. Since he knows himself to be so wicked, even to the point of persecuting God's people like we saw last week. I'm not going to rehash what we went over last week. But Paul knows how evil he was, and if you were here last week, you know how evil Paul was, because we talked about it. So let's look at 15 again. He says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Right off the bat, Paul opens up with a classic line that he uses a lot. He uses this very frequently talking about this is a faithful saying. He uses this uh, phrase many, many times in the pastoral epistles especially. Uh, we see it here. We're going to see it again when we get to chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to see it in chapter 4 and verse 9. We're going to see it in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 11 when we get there. And we're going to see it in Titus chapter 3, verse 8 when we get there as well. Uh, this faithful saying... And then Paul follows it up by saying that Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, Paul isn't saying that he currently sins more than anybody else, that 
Yep, I, I'm the chief of sinners. I still am. That's not what Paul's saying. Because, how do I know that? Because so many other places, he says that he's got a perfectly clear conscience. Let's look at, oh, over to Acts chapter 23, just for an example. Let me build a case here. Acts chapter 23, uh, particularly verse 1. He says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He's on trial there before uh, Ananias. Uh, that doesn't sound like a guy who's the chief of sinners at that point. If he's living in with an all-good conscience, uh, while we're in Acts, turn over to the next chapter, uh, 24, verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So Paul isn't saying that he's still the chiefest of sinners, still living a life of sin, He also, uh, let's take another example. Let's go over to Philippians chapter 3, where he tells people to uh, follow his example. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. If he's calling people to follow him as an example, then he's clearly not living in a life of sin. So what's Paul saying here? If he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners, well, apparently, looking back to what we were looking at last week, apparently Paul sees his persecution of Christians as an act that made him the chiefest sinner. That was about the most heinous thing Paul could possibly think of doing. And we went into that in a little bit in detail. Basically, Paul got a hunting license to hunt Christians. Now, there's no question that in his day, first century A.D., in his day, Paul did more than anyone else on earth to hinder the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. There's no question about that. But that very wickedness in Paul's life allowed God to make him an example of his grace, don't you see? And we're going to see that when we get uh, in verse 16. He says, How be it for this cause, for this cause, because I am the chiefest of sinners, that's why I obtained mercy. Paul was set aside by God just as an example of how gracious he can be. We talked for the last couple of weeks on why does God allow certain things to happen. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand. Why does God allow genocide? Why does God allow you name it? God allows it so that he can show his grace through it. Now, God making Paul, making Saul of Tarsus into Paul the apostle, the, the one who on the one hand did the most to stop the spread of the gospel and arguably, after the road to Damascus, the one who in church history did the most for the spread of the gospel. That's really something to think about, isn't it? Did you know that our God is a gracious God? Has he shown any grace to you? Now see, that's what Paul says is a faithful saying. 
That's a faithful saying. You can take that to the bank, Paul says. Now, that would be significant to Timothy, because remember the circumstances Timothy's got. He's preaching in Ephesus in an area where untrustworthy teaching is all around. In fact, that's his mission that Paul gave him way back in our first lesson in 1 Timothy, was that you're going to be here to stop some of these false teachings. There's false teaching all over the place in Ephesus. Here's a faithful saying, Timothy. Here's one you can hang on to. Our God is so gracious, he took me from persecuting and destroying the gospel to the person we know as the Apostle Paul. That would mean a lot to Timothy, who we've already said was getting discouraged. Now, Paul's giving Timothy a teaching that he can endorse and he can embrace. As I say, Timothy was surrounded by untruthful teachings. Does it sound familiar today? Is there any untruth in the world today? There's a little bit of untruth in the world today. But do you know what? There is a faithful saying, my God is gracious. What was true then is still true today. And you can, just like Timothy, you can still endorse it and you can embrace it. Then Paul goes on to declare that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Now doesn't that sound like a pretty simplistic viewpoint? I mean, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, in those days, and today as well, nothing's really changed. Some heretics were teaching that Jesus came for other reasons. People teach that today. We were having a little bit of a discussion about that in my house, uh, Samuel and myself and Paulette, last evening. Some people teach that Jesus Christ came into the world for other reasons. Some people teach today that Jesus came so that he could teach us how to live properly. He came here as an example of how we ought to live. Or he came to bring peace uh, and to show us that we can have peace. And some of that's true. But that was not his primary purpose, you see. His primary purpose, Jesus came to do what the law never could, and that is to save sinners. And that's what Paul wrote in Romans 8 and verse 4. Let's, let's back up and look at that. We looked at it last week. I want to look at it again. Romans 8 and verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let's back up to verse 3. That's what I should have done. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's why Christ came. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. The focus of the whole statement here is the effect, to save. The effect is that I am saved through that. That's the Greek verb sozo, which Paul uses 29 times, seven of them here in the pastoral epistles. The idea is that of rescuing someone from God's wrath. You know, I read the Bible a lot. I hope it shows. Uh, I try to read other things, too, because, uh, I don't know, you can get kind of uh, 
I don't believe it's healthy to be just remaining in reading the Bible all the time. So to put myself into a, I, this is the excuse I'm using, to put me, myself into a historical perspective for what's going on, I'm reading the Iliad again. And you know, when you're reading the Iliad, I've read it before, uh, the gods are constantly showing wrath on people. That's what it's all about. Uh, it's basically a tiff between this set of gods and that set of gods. That's where this idea of so-so comes from, to be saved from the wrath of the gods. In our case, we're saved from the wrath of the one true God. We've got to look at these, these Greek words are used, we've got to look at them in context sometimes. The context is being saved from the wrath of their, their gods and demigods. But we're talking about the one true God. Sinners who don't get saved are on a beeline for God's judgment. And Jesus is the only salvation from that judgment. Romans 3 and verse 19, we all know it. It says that all mankind is condemned. Let's take a look at it. Romans 3 and 19. In case there's somebody here that doesn't, isn't familiar with it. Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith unto them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. We looked at the law last week. I'm not going to teach it all again. Keep your finger in Romans, too. I want to look at a couple other things while we're in the neighborhood. But you see, the glory of the law is always bungled up when people try to meet its demands on their own. They try to satisfy it on their own. You bungle it up. And that's because of one thing, the simple fact that we're sinners. We can't help it. We talked about that last week. But Romans 5, 8 tells us something else. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, the very thing that causes us to bungle the law up, God says, in spite of that, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Sinners, by definition, are condemned. You are a guilty sinner, condemned. But that very status, a condemned sinner, qualifies me to be saved. If I'm not a sinner, I don't need to be saved. I'm not even qualified for salvation. Did you ever look at it that way? If you're not a sinner, you're not even qualified to be saved. What do I need to be saved from? What a concept that is. Skip right down to verse 19, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And that all happens because of what Jesus declared in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where he said, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. When he was asked, why have you come? He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, in fact, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 23, he said, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's Jesus' own words talking about why he was here. And so, back to verse 15 here. 
Paul includes himself in that list of sinners. Why did Jesus come? He came to save me, Paul says. I'm the leader of sinners. I'm the chief. By the world's standards, let's think about this for a little bit. By the world's standards, Paul, even as Saul of Tarsus, would have seemed to be pretty good. After all, he was fervently following God in the best way he knew how. He sincerely followed God the best way he understood. Unfortunately, his understanding was wrong. That's the problem. That's the problem each one of us have. That's the whole problem, Paul says. Religious self-righteousness does more harm than anything else. And that's what Paul was guilty of. Religious self-righteousness does more harm than anything else. Let's move down to verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So in this verse... Paul makes an example of himself to show the effect of true Christian doctrine. Paul says, I'm the sort of person that the law was written for. Back up a couple of weeks, we were talking about the law wasn't written for the righteous. The law was written for sinners, and Paul listed a whole list of evil sins, really bad, murderers of mothers, murderers of fathers, we talked about all kinds of things sexual deviance, all these various things. And Paul says, and I'm the chief. The law was written for people like me, Paul says. And the result of the gospel working in his life wasn't a case of speculation. I guess it worked. It was a transformation. As I just finished saying, Paul went from Saul of Tarsus on a hunting trip to hunt and kill Christians, to Paul, the apostle, in a matter of three days, the greatest evangelist that's probably ever walked this earth. That's a transformation. And Paul starts right off by saying, for this cause I obtained mercy. See, nobody would have expected Saul of Tarsus to ever get saved. It's the last thing anybody on earth would have expected. I was sitting this morning drinking my coffee, thinking this lesson over, and I was trying to think of a comparison today, and I can't think of someone who fits the bill so evil as Saul of Tarsus that, nah, they would never get saved. I can't, thinking around the world, the only example I could think of is if someone in our current administration would suddenly become conservative tomorrow. that's the, old, that's the best example I could think of. No, it'll never happen. But that's the God that we have, is he can take Saul of Tarsus and turn him into Paul the Apostle. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Some of you folks uh, may not have heard what I've said. Uh, there's a motto that the uh, British SAS have. And they say that we specialize in the difficult, and the impossible takes us a little longer. Uh, That's our God. 
Our God specializes in the difficult. The impossible sometimes takes him a little longer. He does what no one would think possible. He took Saul, made Paul. And the source of that mercy is Jesus Christ. As we see in the next phrase, he says, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering." God showed his mercy to Paul through Jesus Christ simply because he was the chiefest of sinners. That reminds me of how God acted for the Old Testament, uh, acted for Israel in the Old Testament. You ever think about that a little bit? Uh, let's go back to Deuteronomy. We don't often turn to Deuteronomy. Uh, you know Deuteronomy is the most quoted uh, book in the Bible by uh, Jesus. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. If Jesus thought that much of it, we probably ought to look at it more often than we do. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. God talking to Israel. He didn't favor Israel because they were so mighty. Or, he didn't favor them because of their righteousness. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 6. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess for your righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. It's not because you are particularly great people either. No, you're a stiff-necked people. I don't even know why I'm doing this. Kind of, that's kind of what God's saying. He's making an example of how good a God he is. That's what he's doing. Deuteronomy 10, while we're right here, verse 22. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. Do you see what God's saying there? Just because I wanted to make my name great, I raised something out of nothing. You were slaves in Egypt. Now look at you. And you know why? It's because of me, God says. It's not because you were that great. It's not even that you were very good. It's just because I wanted to. That's why God's grace through Christ came to you. Just because God wanted to. There's nothing special about you. Nothing special about me. God made an example for, out of Paul for the exact same reason. God used Paul just to show his mighty power. To prove that he raised, just as he raised up Pharaoh in the days of Moses, he could do the same thing for Saul of Tarsus. But notice that there's an interesting word used to describe Jesus, that he might show forth all long-suffering. Long-suffering. And when I think of that word, all I can think of, let's go over to Psalm 103. Talking about uh, the long-suffering. Psalm 103 in verse 8. It doesn't actually use that particular word here, but it's the same concept. 
And this is what came to my mind this morning. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. That's describing long-suffering, if you're wondering what that looks like. Jesus is very patient with you and me, isn't he? He allows us to keep going in our sinful ways. But he still saves us in the end if we will only repent. And what's the result of this, this grace, this long-suffering that Jesus shows? For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him. That's you and me. We believe on him because of what he did to Paul. We've seen what he did to Paul. Paul wrote this down. You and I see that. We believe on him with the result to life everlasting. Hallelujah. To life everlasting. Now that right there is something the law could never offer. Only by repenting and following Christ can the gift of everlasting life ever be made known. Verse 17. Now, because of all that we've looked at so far, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right there we see Paul give glory to God as a transcendent king. He is eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. And yet he still intervenes in this world to save sinners like you and me. Let's take a, just a brief look at how Paul describes God here. First thing I notice is he calls him a king. And while he calls him a king, at the same time, he declares his eternality. You notice when you look at this here, we'll have a simple English lesson. It won't be a Greek lesson now. Let's just have an English lesson. Look at the commas. Now under the king eternal, that's one unit. Immortal, one unit. Invisible, one unit. The only wise God, one unit. King and eternal are tied together. He was and has always been and will always be the king. He is the king eternal. Always was, is now, always will be the king. He existed before time and is not bound by it. You and I are only on this earth for a very brief period of time. And then our reputation just kind of fades away. People start, oh, well, you remember when you used to, Dan, I remember Dan way back, yep. He's been gone, and then 20 years later, nobody even talks about Dan anymore. Dan's gone. But God is and always has been the king. There's no cause and effect with God. He is the cause. Nothing affects him. He sees all things all of all time all at once. That sets God apart from all other kings, doesn't it? He is the king eternal. On a similar note, God says that he, uh, Paul says that God is immortal. 
Well, isn't that saying the same thing? No, not at all. It's say, this is talking about how his reign is going to last forever. He, he personally is eternal. His reign also will last forever. So that's just another aspect that sets God apart from all other kings. I mean, Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne longer than anybody else in, in recorded history. She's the longest reigning monarch in history. She, by the way, she's the last World War II vet still on the throne anywhere in the world. She used to run an anti-aircraft gun at the age of 17. Did you know that? Uh, that's hard for me to picture. Uh, she and her sister both, uh, <laughs> they both ran anti-aircraft guns. Different times, I guess. Uh, but God, he's immortal. His reign is forever. He's also invisible. He's a spirit. Not, he's not a created being. That's what Jesus was explaining back in John chapter 4, verse 24. To the woman at the well, I'll let you look that up yourself. Throughout the Old Testament, we see statements that say that nobody can see God. He's invisible. But, through faith in Christ, you and I can now see the invisible God. That's something to think about too, isn't it? And what's more, Paul tells me, let's look at this one, uh, 2 Corinthians. Oops, went too far. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Paul's talking about the gospel. Uh, all right, I'm going to back up to verse 3. 3 to 6. But if our gospel be hid, it is hidden to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that picture of the gospel that God has given to us. The gospel that we preach, the gospel that I try to preach here, try to preach in the world, shows the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Another thing about God here, described here is that he's the only wise God. He is singular. There is none like him. And that's what the very first commandment that God gave to Moses. We talk about the Ten Commandments. The very first one is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am singular, God said. Let's get one thing straight before we talk about anything else, Moses. There is none like me. He alone is the creator and the redeemer of the world. And Isaiah acknowledged that in his prayer in Isaiah. Uh, let's go to Isaiah 37. I'm almost done. If I can find it. Isaiah 37, verse 20. He says, 
Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. In Isaiah's mind, there was no other Lord. Now let's think about this for a minute. Paul's saying that he's the only wise God. I just finished telling you that I'm reading the Iliad again. There's a whole bunch of gods. In Paul's day, pretty much the whole world at that time was polytheistic. Didn't matter if you were a Druid. Didn't matter if you were Norse. Didn't matter if you were Buddhist. If you were Roman or Greek. They were all polytheistic. They had a lot of gods. Only Jews and Christians claimed to have one true God in Paul's day. This is revolutionary, what Paul's talking about. There is only one God, and he is the wise God, and he is the only God. He's the king, he's eternal, he's above all, he's invisible, and he's immortal. And that's the one we ought to praise. It's to that God, that God and no other, that Paul gives honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul owes God all honor and all glory forever and ever. You and I do too. And I think that's a good spot for us to stop today, don't you? All right. You mind if I close in a word of prayer?